Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. As you know, not everyone accepts Christianity. Some are attracted to it, and then they start having doubts about it. It can get worse. There are those who just flat out deny the basic truths of Christianity. But beyond that are those who don't just deny Christianity, they debunk it. They attack it. They even mock it. Of all the people that we deal with, those are perhaps the most difficult. Uh, in the first place, it's not fun to be laughed at for something that you hold near and dear. But beyond that, they sometimes use uh, arguments that sound reasonable and logical, can even cause you to doubt some of the things that you believe. So how do you handle somebody who's scoffs at Christianity. What do you need to know about them, and what do you need to do uh, with them? Well, Peter addresses that kind of question in his second epistle, chapter 3. So may I invite you to join with me in 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 1. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the works which they have spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for the fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. To say this is a full passage is an understatement. Uh, what's here is in one sense uh, rather simple, and in another sense is rather detailed and complex. So let me see if I can lay this passage out as simply as possible. The first thing you need to know is that the subject in these verses is scoffers. That's what he is basically talking about. He mentions them directly in verse 3, but frankly, the whole passage is really talking about scoffers. The way the passage can be divided is that in the first seven verses, he says some things about the scoffers. Matter of fact, he says in verse 1, I'm giving you this to stir up your minds. It's not that you didn't already know this, but I'm just going to remind you. Uh, 
Then, in verse 8, if you'll look at it, he says, But, beloved, do not forget this. Now, I think that sort of divides the passage into two parts. In the first seven verses, he is talking primarily about the scoffers. In the last part of the passage, beginning with verse 8 and going through verse 10, he is talking about some things you need to know about the Lord. The scoffers are scoffing things of the Lord, so he has some things to say about the scoffers, and then he reminds us some things about the Lord himself. And all of it is to remind them what they already know. So he says in verse 1, I'm telling you this to stir up your minds, and he says in verse 8, don't forget this. So what are these things that we already know that we need to be reminded of? Well, let's go back and start with verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle. Now, I think if you didn't know anything about the Bible at all and you just picked it up and started reading, it would be obvious that this is the second epistle, right? I mean, the one just before it's called 1 Peter and then the one, that, the one we're looking at is called 2 Peter. He must have written two epistles. And I think that is true. I just want to point out in passing that even though he says that, there are people who doubt that he is talking about 1 Peter when he says two. There are some who even doubt that he wrote the second one. But I think it's very obvious that he's talking about both 1 and 2 Peter. Notice what he says. I write to you the second epistle, in which both of which I stir up your minds by way of a reminder. Now, I think it's interesting that in both epistles, he exhorts believers to live a godly life. And in both epistles, he mentions the return of the Lord. Now, those two things are connected in his mind, as we will see them talked about in this long paragraph. At any rate, he says, in both of these epistles, I wrote to you to stir up your pure minds. What does he mean by pure minds? Plato used this very expression, and what he meant by it was pure reason, that you need to be reasonable. I think Peter has more in mind that it be pure versus contaminated. To appreciate that, you need to keep the flow of this book in mind. In chapter 2, he talked about false teachers, and warn believers not to hear what they had to say. So now he's saying, I want to stir up your pure mind, I would say, uncontaminated by false teaching. I want to remind you to think along uncontaminated thoughts versus the contaminated thoughts of the false teachers. Now, he wants to remind us of something we already know. What is he talking about? Well, he says in verse 2, <clears throat> that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, of course, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, <clears throat> I, I'm not telling you anything new. I want to remind you of some spiritual truth. I think that uh, hearing the same spiritual truth over and over gets boring. And that's true, it can. You hear the same thing all the time, it can get boring, tedious. So I think people want something new. They want something novel. But the truth is, we need to look at the reality, and the reality is we tend to forget spiritual truth, and therefore we need to be constantly reminded of certain basic spiritual truths. In this case, what was written by the holy prophets and the apostles. But we need to be reminded. Dr. Johnson, the literary figure, said, It is not sufficiently considered that men more frequently need to be reminded than informed. When Einstein was asked if he carried a notebook to record his new ideas, he replied, he didn't have many new ideas. 
There aren't many new ones. They're old ones we just forget. My brother, who is, as you know, a therapist in Dallas, says, uh, we need to be told once and reminded many times. Every parent knows that, right? But just because you're an adult doesn't mean you outgrow that because every teacher and pastor knows we adults need that too. So we need to be reminded. Now, he specifically says we need to be reminded of what the prophets and the apostles, including himself, have taught. Now, what does he have in mind? It seems to me that if you just read this epistle all the way through without being interrupted by chapter breaks and verse divisions, that it's obvious that he talks in 1 Peter, for example, about the prophets and the second coming of Christ. Does that here as well. Also, he in both epistles talks about godly living. And as we shall see as we delve into this passage, those two things seem to be linked in his mind. That he wants to remind us some things about the second coming of Christ and at the same time, he wants to remind us about uh, godly living. So, if that is in a correct observation, then this verse gathers together prophecy and the commandments to godly living in light of prophecy, which seems to be his point here. So, the lives and lies of the false teachers are in stark contrast to the walk and talk of the apostles and the prophets. The false teachers walked according to the flesh. We saw that in chapter 2. Uh, the apostles and prophets were holy men of God. The false teachers denied the Lord. We're told that in chapter 2 of this epistle, verse 1. And they lured and led people into unrighteous living. The apostles and the prophet wrote to teach us that the Lord is going to return, and so we should live in light of the second coming of Christ. That means we should live godly lives. So he is clearly, uh, I think, saying, I need to remind you, in contrast to what the false teachers are teaching in chapter 2. As you know, when Peter wrote this, there was no chapter break. So hot on the heels of saying, don't listen to the false teachers, he says, listen to the apostles and prophets. And in the flow of the book, I think he is talking about prophecy and godly living. Now, he says in verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers who come in the last days walk according to their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? That since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now notice, notice very carefully. I think this is important. He says, scoffers, and that is probably a reference to the false teachers of chapter 2, walk according to their own lust. He says that about the false teachers in chapter 2. And... They deny the Lord is coming, saying, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are. So where is he coming? They are denying, they're scoffing at the idea of the second coming of Christ. But what I want you to notice is that in these two verses, he is in juxtaposition talking about prophecy and Godly living all at the same time. So the point is this. In the last days, scoffers are going to come. Now one of the things you have to ask is, what does he mean by last days? We would automatically think that that means the days just before the coming of Christ. Part of the problem with that is that the expression the last days in the New Testament seems to refer to the whole period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And there are passages where that's true. At the same time, there are a few passages where the last days can refer to the days just prior 
to the second coming of Christ, which is probably the basic meaning here, though that phrase can appear, uh, apply to the whole period between the first and second advent of Christ. At any rate, be all that as it may, he is saying in this passage, scoffers are coming, and they're going to scoff at the second coming of Christ. So false teachers walked according to the lust of the flesh, and scoffers walked according to the lust of the flesh, and mocked the idea of the second coming of Christ. Ever heard anybody do that? Ever heard anybody mock, laugh at that? If you haven't, you haven't talked to many people about Christianity. Um, I think that um, nothing new, and happens all the time, it's happened in past time. Can you imagine, I, I've, I've, I think that probably the greatest illustration of this is Noah's day. Can you imagine Noah building the boat and they'd never seen a flood? And they said, Noah, you want to tell us again what you're doing? Well, yeah, I'm building a boat. A what? A boat. And what, what are you doing that? Well, there's a flood coming. A what? Are you out of your mind? Call the guys in the white jackets. We need to get this guy some help real quick. I mean, he's, he's off his rocker. Now, I'm telling you Jesus is coming back. Mm -hmm. And you say, huh? I mean, the argument is, you know, they've been saying that for years. As a matter of fact, uh, Christians are their own, their own worst enemy. Uh, you know, I, some are predicting the Lord's going to come back. I, I know a fellow that's a, a, a great guy, and he loves the Lord, and he decided the Lord was going to come back because Israel was founded in 1948, he was going to figure a generation, so he figured by 1988 the Lord was coming. You ever heard stuff like that? And so what that produces is a bunch of scoffers. So 88 came and they said, huh, the Lord didn't come back. Are you sure about all this? And that's the problem. So he says, uh, scoffers are coming. But what's important is that he says in the process of that, not just that they are scoffing at the second coming, but he labors the point that they live according to the flesh and deny that the Lord is coming back. So those living in sin deny the prophetic events. Could it be that they deny the prophecy because of their lifestyle? Is that not sort of implied in these passages? As a matter of fact, I think that's very possible. I learned this many, many years ago when I was an evangelist. I used to have sessions with young people where I would not let any adults come. That was just so I could get the young people to talk. And I'd get them in a room after the service. Says, you can ask me any question you want to on any subject. Now, that's not real risky for two reasons. Number one, there's only about 10 questions they would ask. And number two, if I didn't know the answer, I told them I didn't know the answer. It was that simple. But I remember once getting into a conversation with a gal that was in high school. And in this session where there were just teenagers present, and it was up in Minnesota, and she wanted to argue with me about hell. She didn't believe there was a hell. And I, I did something I knew not to do, and I had I'd only one or, once or twice allowed it, but I answered her, she answered me back, and I answered her, and that was not a good idea. So after the session was over, I went up to her and I said, I owe you an apology. I shouldn't have let this degenerate into that kind of a discussion. Can I tell you a story? Now here's the lady sitting in front of me denying that there's a hell. And I said, let me explain something. The Bible teaches we're sinners. Jesus died for our sin. And if we trust Christ, we can have eternal life. And she began to cry. And I led her to the Lord. And I said, I thought you didn't believe in hell. And she said, oh. the problem was she was having an affair with a married man. Ah. You see, it wasn't a mental issue. It was a moral issue. And that's what's going on, I think, with these scoffers. He links the denial of the second coming of prophecy with walking in the flesh. Put those two things together. And remember this. That's what he wants us to do. You should know this. He says, I want to remind you of this. You need to know this. 
that some people who are objecting to Christianity are not doing it because they lack information. It's because they lack willingness, and it's because of their lifestyle. Now, that explains a ton. Now, having said that, I do think I should add, there are people who have legitimate questions, and they need to be given reasonable answers. I have spent my life trying to do that with people. However, when they won't accept the reasonableness of the answer, then something else is going on, and it's not just a mental issue. There is a very reasonable, logical case for Christianity and the second coming of Christ, if you accept the Scripture especially. So for somebody to deny that in the face of a reasonable presentation of it, something else is going on, and it's moral, not mental. That is not to say that they're legitimate mental questions there are. Just be careful. But what you need to note is that what the argument of these scoffers is, eh, look, it, this is their argument. Nothing's changed. I mean, things are just like they are. Since the fathers died, things are just the same. Now, uh, that argument gets used today. Uh, in a sense, the deists used it. Their idea was that God created the world and wound it up like a clock and then he left it on its own and it just operates on natural law after that. God doesn't intervene. God doesn't, things don't change. It operates by natural law. As a matter of fact, the theory of evolution is built on this idea. It's called, this is a technical word, uniformitarianism. And the idea is that things have not changed. They're always the same. And so they are assuming that since things in the past are like things in the present, there must be evolution. That's the, the philosophical basis of evolution, actually. So this argument is even used today, though people might not be aware of it when they are using it. So their argument is, look, nothing's changed. God doesn't intervene in life. He created the world, and it goes on. And, you know, so he says he's coming back. Yeah, right. He hasn't done it in 2,000 years. What makes you think he's going to do it now? So Peter says in verse 5, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. What in the world is that all about? Well, to understand verses 5 and 6, you have to understand that in verse 4 he says, all things continue as they were from the beginning. And Peter comes back and says, that's willful. point I made a minute ago about it's not a mental issue, it's a moral issue. That's willful forgetting. Now, how do you willfully forget? You ever tried that? How do you willfully forget? What does that expression mean? I think it means the idea that you choose to deliberately ignore certain facts. I'm choosing to ignore that and land on something else. I think a great illustration is uh, where there's a hung jury. And uh, I love watching mysteries. You like mysteries on TV? It's my favorite pastime is to watch a good murder mystery. I used to like uh, Murder, She Wrote, because there was one clean murder at the beginning and the rest of it was trying to figure out who did it. One of my all-time favorite programs, besides Perry Mason. At any rate... Uh, they, you know, they, they present all these facts, and, and the guy's clearly guilty. They found his fingerprints, for crying out loud. But he claims he wasn't even there. And so they get in the jury room, and there's this one holdout who says, I, I just think he's not guilty. And the other 11 say, but look, his fingerprints were there. I know, but he was there before. It doesn't mean he was there then. And 
they, in light of all the evidence they, few, they refuse to buy it, they're going to willfully forget that bit of information and accept another bit of information. Watch it. That's what often happens with a skeptic or a scoffer at Christianity. I've had them do it. I've talked to them and given them the reasons why they should believe the Scripture is the Word of God, and they ignore that because they feel differently. Okay? So he says they willfully forget. Forget what? That by the Word of God... He created the heavens and the earth, and then he says, standing out of water and in water, and then he destroyed the world by water. What in the world is all the water about in those two verses? Well, very simply, if you read the book of Genesis, there was a canopy of water over the earth at the beginning, and there was water on the earth, and that's what he means by these words. And at the flood, the canopy of water collapsed, that's where the water for the flood came from. And the water subterranean came up. The book of Genesis is very clear about that. And that's what caused the flood. His point is, in verse 4, he just said, the scoffers are arguing, things are always like they've always been. The point being, God doesn't intervene. And so his answer is, well, of course he does. Did you not know about creation? By his word, he created the heavens and the earth. And by his word, he caused judgment to come upon the earth. So his argument is that God created the world and God destroyed the world. And the point he's making is God intervenes in the world. You are saying nothing changes. I'm telling you, according to the word of God, things have changed and things will change. So he says in verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So we're right back to the point that uh, he created the world by his word, he judged the world by his word, and by that same word there is coming a future judgment. So Peter is directly addressing the issue. All things have always been as they always been. There's nothing changed. And he's directly saying, but if you start with the word of God, you'll see basically it comes down to God intervenes. He's intervened in the past and he's going to intervene in the future. So, the issue, I think, is summed up in that little phrase in verse 5, they willfully forget. They are willfully forgetting facts, and particularly, they are forgetting the Scripture. All right, so far, we're talking about scoffers. What you need to know is basically two things. You need to know that these scoffers are denying the second coming of Christ, arguing that all things are, remain as the same. And secondly, you need to know, they are really following their ungodly lust. And I'm putting those two things together, he does, suggesting that the reason they are scoffers is because they want to justify their lifestyle. Now, the second part of this passage says, you need to know some things about the Lord. So look at verse 8. But do not forget this. There's some things about the Lord you need to remember. If you're facing a scoffer, you need to know these couple of things. For one thing, he says in verse 8, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. What in the word does that mean? Well, it's interesting that it is in the Word because uh, the last part of this verse is uh, borrowed from Psalm 90, verse 4. But I think the point is simply this. God's sense of time is different than ours. Now, remember, their argument is, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. That's their argument. 
So he's saying, you're worried about time? God doesn't measure time the way we do. That's why he says, uh, in verse 8, uh, one day is like a thousand years with him, and a thousand years is like a day. You're bringing up the time issue. With God, that's not the real issue. What man considers to be a long time, a thousand years, is just a day to the Lord. So if you're going to look at this from God's perspective, you're going to see that the time factor is no factor at all. So the first thing you need to know is something about God's time frame. The second thing you need to know is in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The second thing you need to know is something about God's patience. All right, scoffer, you are correct. It's been a long time. 2,000 years to be exact. So what? Why is God waiting? And the answer is in verse 9. You see, most people think if, it does, if, the, if, God, if somebody promises something and it isn't fulfilled pretty quick, that means they uh, didn't have the ability to fulfill it or weren't willing to fulfill it or whatever. And he says, no, 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 no. God is not slack concerning his promises. He's long-suffering. He's patient. That's the idea. So why is he so patient? Because he is giving people time to repent. How long did it take Noah to build the boat? Remember? This is uh, quiz time. Remember that? 120 years. You think he could have built the boat any quicker than that? Yeah, probably. Then why did it take him so long? Because God was saying, Hey, see that boat? You need to listen to that builder of the boat. He's trying to tell you something. Now, God's given us 2,000 years. Why is he waiting? Because he wants all men to come to repentance. Oh, boy. Ah, I've got at least three hours I think I'm going <laughs> to talk about this. I want to talk about the word repent for a minute. I wrote a book once called Repentance, the Most Misunderstood Word in the Bible. You can get it on Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble. Just type in Michael. Don't put Mike. It won't, they'll say there's nothing available. If you type in Michael in my last name, it'll, you'll find it. But I'm going to give you a crash course, all right? Here's why it's most misunderstood. Everybody interprets, the minute they hear the word repent, what do you think of? Repent of what? Sin. The word sin isn't involved in that word at all. The Greek word, can I get technical? Is metanoia. Meta means after, noia means mind. It's an afterthought. It's a second thought. It's to change your mind. That's all it means. Let me give you an illustration. What does dozen mean? Twelve what? I mean, at Krispy Kreme, it's donuts. On the farm, it's eggs. So the word dozen has to be interpreted by its context. It, it, there is not in it a dozen eggs or donuts or screws or nuts or bolts or anything else. All right? That's the word repent, and that's why it gets so misunderstood. Everybody immediately hears it, and they think repent. They think sin. That's not at all true. For example, Hebrews 6, 1 says repentance uh, from dead works. Well, there, it's not sin. It's doing the things of the Old Testament tabernacle. It's not sin at all. Things God commanded. Or repentance toward God. Maybe you need to change your mind about God. My favorite passage on this subject, one of the ones that somebody pointed out to me years ago that really got my attention, was uh, this. Peter does not use this word anywhere in 1 Peter or anywhere in 2 Peter except this verse. And in this verse, he doesn't tell us what he means by it. So how are we going to know what Peter meant by the word repent? Well, in Acts chapter 2, he preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost. 
Remember? Now, uh, the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, and they all spoke in tongues, and the people thought they were drunk. And Peter stands up and says, Hey, folks, uh, we're not drunk. It's too early. People don't get drunk in the morning. That was in the first century. That's, that's going to apply to the second <laughs> century. But uh, in that day, they didn't get drunk till late at night. And he says, We're not drunk. It's too early in the day. And then he preaches a sermon. Now, here's what he says to them. I want to tell you about Jesus. You with wicked hands slew the Lord of glory. That he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And he arose from the dead. And you crucified him. He's talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. And they say, oh, wow. What do we need to do? And Peter says what? Acts 2.38. Repent. Repent of what? The only person accused of a sin in that passage is Peter, with being drunk. He's telling them to repent. What did they do? They had the wrong view of Jesus Christ. They, they thought he was a common criminal. And what he's telling them is change your mind about Jesus Christ. Now, if you understand that, then all of a sudden some things begin to make sense. Like, what is the relationship between repentance and faith? For example, there's only one book in the Bible written to tell us how to be saved. That's the Gospel of John. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might, be, but that you might believe and, and then have life in his name. The word repent doesn't appear in that book one single time. Not once. Wow. Does the Bible require that you repent in order to be saved? Oh, absolutely. Well, then why is it mentioned in the Gospel of John? Because if you understand what John says and accept it, you will have automatically repented. Now, let me show you that in the Bible. I'm going to come back to First Peter, Second Peter, but put your finger there, or a tube of lipstick, or a hairpin, or something, and turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Peter is preaching... In Cornelius' house, Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, uh, in verse 43 it says, now Peter, we're going to break in right in the middle of the sermon. To him all the prophets witness through his name, whosoever believes in him should receive the remission of sins. What do you have to do to receive the remission of sins? Believe. What does that verse say? Believe. Believe. Right in the middle of his sermon. They didn't give him the courtesy of waiting and giving an invitation to come forward. Right in the middle of the sermon, they believed. Look at the next verse. While Peter was yet speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. What word did they hear? Believe. They believed right in the middle of the sermon, and bam, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now, Peter knows that because they spoke in tongues. Verse 46. Now, Peter's got a problem. Because up until this point, the only people that were in this thing is Jews. He's got to go back and tell the Jews that he let Gentiles in. That's chapter 11. So he meekly goes back, and he, in essence, in chapter 11 says this, Look, folks, I had nothing to do with this. I, I was just preaching, and right in the middle of my sermon, the, the Lord did this. It wasn't my fault, but the Holy Spirit fell on them. I had nothing to do with this. Now look in chapter 11, and I'm going to read to you what he said. Verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. That's a reference to Pentecost. Verse 16, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to withstand God? Look, folks, it wasn't my fault. God did this. The Holy Spirit did it. Don't blame me. You see what he's saying? Now, what's he talking about? He preached what? Believe, believe and you get the forgiveness of sins, right? They believed clearly. And by the way, they, believe, they, they, they then got baptized. That, that passage proves you get saved before you get baptized. Another problem. Now, look at verse um, 18. 
When they heard these things, they became silent, the Jews, and they glorified God, saying, Then God also granted to the Gentiles faith. What did he grant them? Ooh. You can read for the rest of your life, chapter 10, and you won't find the word repent anywhere in there. Peter didn't tell them to repent. What did he tell them to do? Believe. Believe. Now, if you clearly hear the gospel, that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ died for your sin, Jesus Christ arose from the dead, and what you need to do is trust Jesus Christ plus nothing else, then you are given the gift of eternal life. You are forgiven of your sin. I preached on that last week. I won't reverse all that, all right? And you're justified before God, right? Well, then you've automatically changed your mind about being a sinner. You've changed your mind about who Jesus is. And you've changed your mind about good works. So the real issue is justification is by faith. Now, I've shown you one example. I could go after example after example. That's what I do in the book. I go through every passage in the New Testament and show that the word repent means change of mind. And it's wedded to uh, faith. Matter of fact, it's Spurgeon, I said, who thinks uh, faith and repentance are twins and which is the firstborn, no one can tell. They are just linked together biblically. Now, not necessarily in English or in theology, but biblically, they're linked together. Back to 2 Peter. I did that in less than three hours. I'm so impressed with me. All right. Now, Peter says, that's what the Lord's waiting on. He's waiting on you to change your mind about, in this context, Jesus Christ and the way you're living Change your mind. You're a sinner, and the Lord's coming back. Change your mind. He died for you. You can do nothing to get the forgiveness of sin except trust Jesus Christ and what he did for you. All right, so the point Peter's making is, let me tell you some things about the Lord. You've got to know about the Lord's timetable. He doesn't, he doesn't operate on your timetable. Second thing you've got to know is you've got to know about God's patience. He's patiently waiting for people to repent. The third thing you've got to know is in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Now I need three hours. That verse is so full. Let me, let me just quickly tell you this. The day of the Lord is a technical term. It's used in the Old Testament a lot. Matter of fact, on a Wednesday night Bible study, I went through that a couple of months ago. Now, the day of the Lord, and I'm basing this on the Old Testament as well as the New, begins with a tribulation period just prior to the second coming of Christ. Then immediately after that, there is a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth called the millennium, Latin word for thousand. And then after that, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it's important that you understand that the day of the Lord includes all of that. The meaning of the expression is that the day God intervenes on the earth. And he does it to judge the earth and to establish his kingdom. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So he's talking about the beginning of the day of the Lord. The beginning of the day of the Lord as a thief in the night. Now let me ask you a question. What is it going to be like just prior to the second coming of Christ? Is it going to be calm, peaceful? Read the book of Revelation, not on your ever-loving life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when men say peace and safety, then the, whole, the day of the Lord shall come upon them suddenly. So he's not talking about the second coming proper. The day of the Lord begins with a tribulation which is seven years before 
the second coming of Christ. And just before, it's commonly called the rapture, uh, another Latin word that means caught up, just before the, uh, the tribulation, the rapture is going to take place when people are saying peace and safety. And bam, the Lord's going to come back. It's going to be like a thief in the night. You ever had your house broken into? I had my house broken into once in the middle of the day. Came home, things were missing. Totally shocked. Totally. I lived in a safe neighborhood. You ever had that happen? Had my car broken into one, same thing. You don't expect the thief to come. Well, when you don't expect the Lord to come, bam! Like a thief in the night that you aren't expecting, he comes. And then the tribulation takes place. And then he follows it through. And he just telescopes a whole bunch of events. Like Eventually, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, he's talking about that whole period called the day of the Lord. In context, he's arguing that the Lord is going to intervene again, just like he's done in the past. Because these scoffers are saying, it, it's all the same thing, just like it's done in the past, it's going to be... And he says, no, 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 no. God, God's timetable is not like your timetable. God's waiting for people to come to Christ. In the meantime, God promised the day of the Lord, and it's coming. So don't buy what the scoffers say. So far, so good? You got it? Want to have some fun? Oh, yeah. I got time. Mm -hmm. We're serving lunch here. so oh. I want you to look at the verse again. It says, The Lord will come as a thief in the night with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Wow. Is that ever interesting? A lot of people have pointed out how precise Peter's language fits what we now know about the Adam. You ever heard of J. Vernon McGee, the Bible teacher? McGee said, when the Adam bomb fell on Hiroshima, a flood of light fell on this chapter. And what he means is this. The Greek word translated elements means elemental substance. We now know that the elemental substance of all matter is the atom. The Greek word translated melt means to loose or untie. Is that interesting? When you unloose the atom, boom. So just as Peter describes when the elements, the atom, are united, I mean untied, there is fervent heat and a great noise. So, the atomic bomb illustrates just how accurate Peter was. The elements become untied. That's an autumn bomb. Anyway, be all that as it may. The point Peter is making is that scoffers are coming. And they're... In this case, what they're going to do is laugh at the idea that Jesus is coming back. And that is, this passage is linked to their lifestyle. So, here's what's going on. When you encounter a scoffer, remember, they willfully forget what God said. Because they want to live according to the flesh. And they forget the word of God. So Peter wants you to remember the word of God. Now, let me conclude by making a couple of suggestions. The whole point is, the Lord's coming back, right? Do you believe that? Amen. Yeah. But we tend to forget it. At least we don't live in light of it, right? I mean... What Monday morning do you get up and think the Lord may come back today or this week or this month? How about the Lord could come back next year? Think that's possible? Well, let me tell you, I don't have time. 
it's possible the Lord could come back before I finish this sermon. And that's not very long at all. Though I keep threatening, it's not very long at all. You believe it? All right, what I want you to put in your pocket and walk out of the door with is, remember that. That's the point. Don't forget it like the scoffers. I want to remind you. I know you, I know you knew the Lord was coming back before you came, but that's Peter's point. I'm going to remind you of something you already know. The Lord's coming back. So, what? So live a godly life. Don't buy the scoffer's argument and certainly don't buy the scoffer's lifestyle. But remember, remember, and live accordingly. There's one other thing you could say, which we'll get to later. Later in the passage, down in verse 15, he says, uh, be ready, uh, and 1 Peter 3.15, he says, be ready to give an answer for those who ask the hope that is within you. You need to be ready to answer the scoffers. Yeah, I know what you say, but I'm going to tell you the Scripture's telling you this. And you need to tell them. But you need to remember, for your benefit, the Lord is coming back. Don't forget that. The Lord is coming back and live in light of that event. Early in his ministry, a fellow named White was asked to visit a respected Christian in the community by the name of Mr. Jenkins. So Pastor White went to see Mr. Jenkins. Jenkins was in poor health, had been that way for some time, and he thought he was near the end of his life. When Pastor White arrived, he found that Mr. Jenkins was a little distressed. Mr. Jenkins told him, I'm 87 years old now, and all my life I've been memorizing and claiming the promises of God. But this morning when I woke up, I couldn't remember even one of them. What am I going to do? The young preacher thought for a moment and replied, You may have forgotten God's promises, he said. But do you think for one moment that God has forgotten them? Remember what the Lord said. As the elderly gentleman thought about that, a smile of comfort crossed his face. He knew the answer very well. Pastor White quoted the promises from the Bible, and finally the believer, Mr. Jenkins, said, I'm so tired, I'm just going to go to sleep now and trust God to remember his promises. Now, when you're faced with a scoffer, remember, the Lord doesn't forget his promises. And he promised his son is coming back. Matter of fact, if you don't meet a scoffer, just remember that anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us the promise of your son's return. And Lord, we, we confess that we don't always remember that. We live our lives occupied with other things, but not always in light of the fact that your son is coming back. So, Lord, refresh our memories, delibly impress it upon our minds and our hearts, and teach us to live in light of your son's return. In Jesus' name, amen.